welcome to episode 26 of Anatomy of Tone. I want to start this week's podcast talking about a sweepstakes that Seeker Electric Effects is running now. A couple of weeks ago, I reviewed the Seeker Electric Effects MK1 Tone Bender. And now on the website, Mike Timpson, who owns Seeker Electric Effects, is running a sweepstakes for some pedals. His wife, Amanda, is in need of getting some assistance. She's wheelchair bound and as is in these times in America, it's very difficult sometimes for people who need to get the help they need because of the situation that she's in. She works, but is in a wheelchair and it has to do with insurance. She can't actually get the money to get a motor for her wheelchair, which seems really strange, like how they relegate, like how you can get help or apparently what your level of, of disability is. Mike set up what was intended to be an auction on the website, but I guess there are a lot of legal complications with setting up an auction. He had to set it up as a sweepstakes. You don't have to donate any money to potentially win the pedals, but I highly recommend that. He's a solid guy in the community. And sometimes when these things are happening, we all have to rely on each other because the system isn't always helping those of us in the community that are in need. If you can go to seekerelectricaffects.com and you can enter your name in the sweepstakes if you like, or you can just donate, or you can do both. I'm sure it would be greatly appreciated by Mike and Amanda, and this would help one of us out in the community who's a real solid member and just trying to make art and make music and uh, contribute something that many of us, including me, really love. Let's lean on each other when we can. This week's podcast, I thought I would dig into more about the art of improvisation, talk about what elements are required to improvise well as well and how to develop those techniques and skills. Let's start with a list of skills that are important to have in order to be able to improvise effectively. One is ear training. Ear training, I can't stress enough how no matter what kind of music you make or what you do in music is the most important thing. It's interesting to me in Eastern music, ear training is taught right from the beginning and it becomes a main focus. But a lot of times in Western music, and I guess because some of us will start out learning on our own, it makes sense that maybe we don't understand the importance of that right from the get-go. As when we're teaching ourselves, it's hard to see what's down the, the path to be able to make a solid plan to get to our destination more effectively. Even in colleges, I don't see ear training taught at the level that I think it should be. It is probably the most important skill that you can develop. And when I say ear training, I don't mean perfect pitch. You don't need perfect pitch to be a great improviser, but having relative pitch, being able to hear what a fifth away is, or if you know that you're hearing a major third in your head, or if somebody's playing an octave, recognizing intervals is probably the most important skill. What I mean is the ability to be able to recognize pitches or to be able to sing them at will. If I wanted to sing a fifth, I can hear what that distance is between two pitches and recognizes. If somebody else plays it, I'll be able to recognize it. If I imagine a melody in my brain, I can probably figure it out because I'll be able to imagine what those intervals are, recognize the intervals. Interval recognition. And the other part of ear training too is also chord recognition. Once you hear chord progressions enough, you'll start to recognize them. And you should start to be able to recognize a one to a four to a five chord or two, five, one chord progression. If you hear these things enough or you focus on practicing them and getting used to hearing what they sound like, really listening to them, recognizing them in a jam session or an improv on a gig is going to allow you to expand more because you understand what's going on around you without having to ask questions. You could just move along and communicate with everybody on a musical level. I'll come back and talk about how to practice all of these points. I just want to go through them first and make you aware of what I think the list of most important points for improvisation are. So my second point would be understanding forms. 
domain song forms, APA forms that you could use to structure your improvisations or solos around. One mark of great improvisers is they're always building a story. It's not just a bunch of random words that make up a paragraph that doesn't have any direction without punctuation. They have a plan. The plan may be developing as they go along. They might not have a predetermined plan, but as they're improvising, they're structuring a plan. And what I mean by this is how they're building their phrases. This isn't always applicable, but it's often applicable. So you'll find out that sometimes you want to be completely free with your improvisation. And the point is to be meandering and not have any punctuation and be very blurry with the end or the start of it. It's meant to be this immersive evolving moment that happens. But there's a lot of times where you want to structure it so that the listener feels like they're having a story narrated to them, but it's a story through melody. So how do we do this? We use something that maybe people have heard of called AB forms, right? You have motive one or lick one, and you have motive two or lick two, and how you go in between those in chunks can really set up a sentence or a paragraph like style statement. Here's what I mean. If I have riff A and I play riff A twice, and then I play riff B once, and then I play riff A again. We have an A, A, B, A pattern. And what we've done is we've set up a bit of a plan that people think that you're very intentional or almost that you've played what you've played before. So that there's an A, A, B, A pattern. You're asking a question, you're restating the question, you're giving an answer, and then maybe you're asking the question again. You could do A, 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 B patterns. You could do A, B, A, A patterns. So there's a lot of different patterns here that you can structure solo on. This does a, a couple of things. This allows you to stretch material because if you're just playing free and randomly moving from note to note or phrase to phrase without linking together at all, you can run out of material very fast. Within a few minutes, you'll just be like, I played everything, not even a few minutes, actually, like within eight bars. If the solo is much longer than that, within eight bars, you're out of space. You don't know where to go. So structuring your solos with an AB style pattern, one of those forms can really help you have a plan to develop your material and allow the listener to really think that you have a plan or you're telling them, you're giving them something to walk away with that they can latch on to. The next point is about knowledge of your instrument, you know, whether you play guitar, bass, piano, drums, being aware of where all of the notes are or how sounds are made from all aspects of your instrument, which would be relevant to drums. But let's use guitar for an example for a lot of this. With guitar, I've seen a lot of guitar players not know all the notes on the fretboard. They've read a lot of tab, and so they know if they look at a tablature, they can find the frets. But that doesn't make any musical sense, really. It's just numbers. It doesn't have any connection or correlation to chords or key signatures or scales. One thing it's important to know is if somebody's playing a C chord, what notes are available for the C chord on the fretboard and to be able to play them. Same thing with piano. You're not really going to be able to effectively improvise unless you actually understand your instrument thoroughly from a perspective of pitch. Know what every note is on the fretboard. I don't look at my fretboard and see frets. Sometimes when people ask me what fret it's on, I have to think for a second because I just see pitches. I just see where A flat is. I see where D is. I see where C sharp is. And this is not the easiest thing to learn because it's boring. It's not really the flashiest part of making music. I really had to discipline myself when I learned this and just do it every single day for a predetermined amount of time to make sure that I was just getting my brain. It's the same thing I had to do when I was learning a lot of modes and scales, memorizing the formula of them. It wasn't particularly like a fun task, but it carries so much weight in your career of music. And I just can't state enough how important it is to see notes on your instrument, be able to understand where that is, because that's gonna bring us to the next point is music theory. Music theory gets a bad rap a lot. I don't know when this started or, or how it started. Potentially, some people got burned by some bad teachers that maybe pushed the idea that music creation comes from music theory or that music theory is rules, right? 
but music theory is it's not rules they're just recipes it's just like you would make a souffle what's a recipe to make a souffle what's a recipe to make a bundt cake what's a recipe to make chocolate chip cookies obviously i have sweets in my mind this morning as i'm making this podcast but really that's all they are if you accept it as that then you can use music theory a lot more to your advantage and you're not thinking of music theory as being this bouncer at the door that's not going to let you into the club. If you embrace music theory from the concept that they're nothing more than recipes to get a specific desired result. Sometimes you need to get a desired result in a short period of time. And this is where music theory can allow you to do that. Say you've come up with an idea and you need to develop it and expand it in a short period of time. Not knowing music theory, you may eventually find your way there if you're just listening and you're experimenting, but that might take too much time particularly if you're improvising in a jam session or on stage or need to turn around a composition in a short period of time. Music theory really allows you to get to the point when you need to. I don't start my creation process from music theory. I use music theory to expand on my creative process. That's a clear distinction. If somebody is teaching you or telling you that music theory is be all end all as far as the sense of that's where you should start and everything should be justified by music theory, then you're with the wrong teacher. Your teacher should be instructing you how to effectively use music theory as a way to expand on your ideas, but always keeping in mind that really you can break any of the so-called rules at any time. They're just suggestions to get a desired result or an expected result is more, I think, the, the proper way to think about using it. So I encourage everybody to learn music theory. I have a YouTube channel I started called Anatomy of Tone, which I'll be posting a lot of tips on music theory, how I use it for music creation, or I should clarify, not as the creation process, but to develop and expand creation, and also how to sometimes work my way out of hitting walls or being burnt out or writer's block. And here's another thing that music theory really can allow. It helps my next point, which would be research. You're going to want to research and get an idea for how people that are into your type of music are approaching improvisation or building their melodies or solos. Or You don't just have to study their solos. Studying their melody lines and songs can give you a ton of information about how that style of music is harmonically built and developed. I know a lot of people will say you don't want to listen to what other people are doing because you just want to be yourself. And if you listen too much to what other people do, you're going to lose your identity and you can't lose your identity. You can't be a copy. Don't listen to people say that. I had somebody saying that to me to years and I'm going to say it was a complete lie. It all depends upon you and what your intentions are when you're studying other people. As long as you don't go into researching and studying other people with the idea that you want to be exactly like them. And I encourage you not to be exactly like them because there's already one of them. There's already one Kirk Hammett. There's already one Joe Pass. There's already one David Gilmore. They exist. You're not going to do it better than they are. The idea is to listen to what they're doing, pull some inspiration learn how they're doing it so you can incorporate elements of that into your playing style to make a gumbo of a collection of all your favorite players. The idea is to take a variety of ideas that you've pulled from the style of music you like and the players that you like and alter them, reinvent them or reconfigure them in your own music. I might listen to something that Jimi Hendrix did but then I'm not going to play it verbatim. I might look at the philosophy of how he was executing it, and then I might alter it so that it is inspired by, but I'm altering the recipe. It's just like a lot of times with cooking, you'll get a recipe online and you're making it and you're like, hey, you know what? This could use like a little bit of heat. I Me, mean, I love habanero peppers. I'm often adding habanero peppers into recipes because I just like a little more kick to it. That's a modification that I make, but music works the same way, right? So you might pull something from Hendrix and it's not that you're trying to make it better. It's just that you're trying to find ways to bring out things that you're hearing in your head. Don't just be a parrot and repeat it. At first you have to repeat it in order to be able to 
get it under your fingers and understand how it works. But once you reach that point of understanding the real mechanics and physically and also theoretically about it, that's when you can move into the phase of how do I slightly alter this and how do I move away from its original form so I can make it my own. I love research. I wake up every morning and I spend some time researching different forms of music and what makes it tick. And so right now I'm going through a phase where I'm really into Bill Evans piano voicings. Every morning I wake up, I have a book of Bill Evans piano transcriptions, Omnibook, and I just sit and I read through it. And I read music and that's a great advantage. I would also encourage everybody to learn how to read music. I'll come back to that in a second. But as I'm reading it, making notes in the book actually, and which I'll then transfer to another document, a master document that I have for all my research. But as I'm going through the transcription, I'm looking at it and saying, this is really interesting that he played a sharp 11 here. And why is that? Okay, what chord is this over? And what scale is this part of? Oh, is this part of a Lydian dominant run? How is he just using that Lydian dominant scale to get between two different chord tones? What's happening there? And I'll make notes in the book. Then I have uh, an app on my iPad called GoodNotes, which I use. And I have a notebook in there that is just dedicated to all my research. And I have chapters in it. So I have a lot of things in there. I, I study a lot of music. I have chapters in there about counterpoint. I have chapters in there about polytonality. I have all kinds of things. So I have a section on Bill Evans' voicings in there. I will look at the Omni book that I used a pencil to make notes in. And then I have a, I create a new page in Good Notes. And then I write in what I discovered about that phrase. Oh, he moved from the third to the seventh, but he played notes from the Lydian dominant scale be a three to a flat seven, but it also had the sharp four and the five in it and the natural six. Something like that can be helpful to me when I'm looking at it and just, okay, I'm going to improvise something myself. I'm going to try some phrases now where I move between the third and the flat seven, but I'm going to use notes from the Lydian dominant to pass by there. So this is a recipe that I can use. I may also look at that same phrase and I might just pull the rhythm from it so I can inject some of the rhythm magic that Bill Evans was using in a phrase into it because we mustn't forget about rhythm, which I will also talk about in a moment. But back to the research, I do this all the time. It's amazing how much it can inspire you or just the fact that you're seeing somebody or hearing somebody do it. I like to listen to the song as I'm reading the chart. It's also an important thing just so you're hearing what it sounds like and then you're seeing it. So you're making that connection of sight and sound and you'll be able to say, I recognize that sharp 11 there and now I have a good reference of what that sharp 11 sounds like in context of this chord. Building up your research database for whatever genre music you're into is invaluable. I can't just stress enough like how important and how much it's helped me grow just to really get deep into whatever genre. For me, it's a lot of different genres, but it's okay if it's just one or two genres for you and just dig into that and make notes, be scientific about it. This brings me to talking about reading music. A lot of people have shied away from reading music over the years. It became uncool, or I think people looked at it as being like the man trying to keep you down. It was the institution governing laws on the people. And I would like to try to encourage everybody to leave that idea behind. Reading music is so valuable. I can't stress it enough. And I'm not really sure why you wouldn't know how to read a language that you speak. It just makes sense if you speak English, it's helpful to be able to read and write English. I feel like if you're going to make music, it's important to be able to read and write music. At some point it became uncool, especially in rock and roll to read music. I don't know music theory. I don't read music. I just play rock. And I'm not going to be little people that have that philosophy. If that's your relationship with music, that's completely cool. Then maybe you don't need music theory. Maybe you don't need to learn how to read music. If you're just learning some songs and jamming, or that's your way of playing with your band and gigs and stuff, that's completely cool. Your relationship with music does not have to go beyond that if you don't want it to. I'm basing this podcast on people that feel like maybe they wanted more or they need to get to a different tier. They have other aspirations, not better or worse or just different. But if you have aspirations to go beyond that, then reading music is such an important resource just from the fact that there is so much music available 
to read. And you can go back hundreds and hundreds of years and study music that was made and learn some of the principles of what made that music special, which still is relevant in today's music real easily. And a lot of that music is free online on IMSLP. You can look that up and you can find lots of scores from Mozart or Beethoven, Stravinsky, Strauss, you name it. There's all the classical romantic Baroque composers are on there. And I know some of you might feel like that's not relevant to what I do, but it is because a lot of that harmony that existed in those times is still being used in pop music, as I just mentioned. Being able to look at the way that they used cadences or that they phrased things or the way that they harmonized lines can be very helpful for when you're improvising. Also, on top of IMSLP being a resource inscribed sometimes as a resource that you can get scores on. There are just so many books that are available to buy to be able to read transcriptions from artists that you love and the genre that you love. You can get the Beatles complete book. It's very small print, but you can also get a magnifying glass and zoom in on it and look a little deeper into some of the harmonic aspects of what made your blues special or Martha, my dear, you can start to analyze some of that stuff. Reading music allows you to analyze music and annotate. I often am annotating. I have a lot of books and I'm just always making notes in them right now. I have a book that I'm reading Bach chorales. I'm also reading, as I mentioned, the Bill Evans Omni book. I'm also reading a, a book on uh, Palestrina's compositions. I'm reading a book on Claude Debussy's compositions, piano compositions, where I'm making notation. I'm looking at string quartets for Alan Berg to analyze. I'm also pulling out the Beatles complete book and analyzing it. So whether you're into Charlie Parker or you're into Slayer, there's books available that you can look at and just analyze maybe two bars at a time even you don't have to analyze a full song you don't have to research the big picture sometimes just pulling small bits and that's exactly what i do i'm looking at the debussy piano music and i might just find two or four bars that there's something happening there i think is really special and i'm going to pull that out and i'm going to put that in my research and i'm going to find a way to use that later so i'm farming right or i should say treasure hunting to find pieces that I can repurpose later on. It's not about playing the whole song note for note. When you're researching, you don't need to learn a full guitar solo or piano solo from somebody note for note. That is really not the point. And that goes to that earlier topic of you're not trying to sound like the person that you're researching. You're just trying to understand what made some of their ideas work that you really liked. So only study the parts that stuck out to you that touched you. You were like, oh, I just really love that sound. How do I figure out how to create that sound? It was interesting because this was what set me on a path to figure out a lot about music that I always wanted to learn, in particular, Bernard Herrmann. He had a score for The Earth Stood Still and there was just some sounds in there that I was always attracted to and I wanted to learn how to compose like Bernard Herrmann. So I started taking lessons, of course, with a couple of amazing instructors and I started researching and they actually came out with a book on the score for the, the day the earth stood still and I was able to study that and through a lot of my lessons and also research I understood more about polychords and I started integrating polychords into my compositions because I found a couple of spots that he was using them and I would figure out what polychords he was using and then I would sit at the piano and I'd find a way that I can use maybe his recipe for polychords, but in a composition in my own way. But I've also done this with guitar licks and drum fills or drum grooves. You can apply it to any instrument that you're playing and really reading music allows you to notate. And this is what I do sometimes in my good notes. It also allows me to have manuscript paper in there. Sometimes I'm copying an exact phrase into good notes and then writing notes below it. And I've done this for surf music and blues and classical and atonal serial composition, you name everything or every genre that I study, I have a section on where I've done exactly this. Research is a powerful tool and reading music is such an amazing assistant in order to be able to do thorough research. But there's another advantage to reading music is you can also use it as a mnemonic to remember things. So I use it to remember songs on a gig so I could visualize what it looked like on paper. 
then my mind can also recall not only hopefully the, the pitches of what it's supposed to sound like, but if I'm pulling a blank on the pitches, I can also use my mind to visualize what the score looked like when I wrote it out. I often make charts for gigs myself and made, and I do notate the rhythms and the pitches. I do use that on a gig to be able to have some form of mnemonic to be able to recall what a song I don't know very well sounded or how it's supposed to be played. And this doesn't just work for learning songs and prepping for a gig. It also works when you are improvising in the moment, because if you create a phrase, and particularly if we're going to use the form pattern, where you're going to do A, B, A, A, B, A, or A, B, any of those formulas, then you're going to have to remember what A and B are if you're going to repeat A again. One thing I'm doing is I'm improvising. It's my mind is always hitting the record button. Some guitar players or pianists or any instrumentalists, one thing I've noticed that they do is that they're playing improvisations and they're not thinking at all about what they're playing. It's just a bunch of random notes. And if you ask them to repeat a phrase, they wouldn't be able to do it. So they're not encoding what they're doing in the moment into the brain. And if you're not encoding, how are you really supposed to be telling a story? That's to me, seems like you don't really know what the story is. And you're just going through a dictionary and pointing at random words and using them. It doesn't mean that you have to have a complete predefined story, but it means you have an awareness of what you're saying in the moment so you could build upon it. Let's make up a story about a caterpillar. Say a caterpillar wakes up on Sunday morning, was a late night out, hanging out at somebody else's cocoon and they need to sleep in, but then they're feeling a little groggy. So they're going to go to their local coffee shop and get a coffee. And they noticed that there was fresh made croissants there. So they got one and it happened to be the best croissant of their life. Now I know I'm not going to win a Pulitzer Prize for this story, but there's a point I'm making here is that if you think about it now, there's probably some key points that you remember about this story. There's a caterpillar, was hanging out late at a cocoon, somebody else's cocoon, slept in late, groggy, went somewhere to get coffee, got a croissant that was amazing. These are our key points. Your mind needs to be working that way when you're improvising too. You have to be able to make something in the moment, which is what I did with that corny story, but then be able to take away the key points to be able to elaborate on. This is one of the ways that you don't run out of steam because you know what you've said and restating something you've said is not bad when you're improvising. It lets the listener feel like they're in on the story. How do you remember what you played? One is awareness and making sure that you're paying attention and you're not overwhelmed by the stress of the experience or who's watching you in the room or what the sound is or any other distractions. And I actually did a podcast about dealing with distractions on gigs, which you can check out if you want to go back a few podcasts. I'm going to have some good tips in there to help you stay focused when you're on stage and not be caught off guard or pulled out of the moment. So reading music is another way to keep you in the moment and help encode what you're writing. When I'm playing parts, I'm imagining what they look like on paper and I'm paying attention to the intervals. Like oh, I just played a lick there that was a minor third apart. Okay, the main focus harmonically of that riff was minor thirds, right? And then I try to think of the rhythm that was playing. Oh, they were eighth notes, they were straight eighth notes. Okay, now I know two things about that. Straight eighth notes, minor third, basis of it. I want to imagine what the phrasing was, and I'll see it in my mind on paper. If you can memorize it and think about the way it sounds and hear it, and that's where the ear training comes in. If you can imagine what it looks like, these are two things you can connect together to help fortify being able to recall what you did. So when you play the B part, you can go back and state the A part again. This way it really makes people feel like they know what you're talking about and you know what you're talking about. This brings us to the point of talking about rhythm. Rhythm is fundamentally the most important thing you can learn with any instrument you play. Rhythm is so deeply embedded in our human code, I can't even begin to explain. There's been a lot of research on how people can recognize what they consider a mistake. And most people recognize a mistake overwhelmingly. If somebody's playing something out of rhythm, 
not intentionally, people recognize that as a mistake before they will recognize you playing the wrong pitch or a dissonance against a chord. It's really interesting because I feel like most people are afraid to play a wrong note more than they are afraid to play a bad rhythm because they hear it themselves and they think, oh, everybody heard that and it wasn't good. And that's also why sometimes after a gig, when if you played a wrong note, people won't mention it to you because there are times where people didn't even notice it or they thought it was intentional or it wasn't as big of a blemish as it would have been if the rhythm was bad. It's funny how much I end up teaching rhythm. It's interesting because that is the number one element that most people lack when they come to me for lessons. Fundamentally, the guitar and the piano are rhythm instruments. But a lot of times when people are self-taught, they don't understand the importance of that until later on, which is why it's important and helpful to have a trail guide as you're learning an instrument, having somebody near you that can say, here's step A, here's step B, here's step C, right? to be able to have some sort of format to the order that you're learning things, it can really help you along the path. But if you haven't done that, you can still learn rhythm. It's never too late. And I encourage everybody to spend a lot of time just reading rhythms. And this is where reading music also is very helpful because you can sit down and force yourself to read rhythms to strengthen your counting because you just have to be able to count. I've seen a lot of people improvising and they don't know where to find beat one. They don't know when four bars have passed. And it's hard to really prepare a story if you're also not keeping tabs on how long your or how many beats your phrasing lasts for. It's important. This is going to allow you to grab phrases that other musicians might be playing on stage that you might want to harmonize or link up with in unison, or you might want to catch some hits that a drummer is playing. Being able to count and make sure that you're strong on rhythm is going to allow you to be able to execute those ideas. And so it allows you to stop repeating the same phrases. One thing that happens with a lot of musicians is that they end up getting stuck in a cycle of playing one or two rhythms over and over again. It becomes difficult to integrate new rhythms in and they just keep playing different songs, but with the same rhythm. We need to learn to integrate rhythm. Rhythm is really what makes music different. If we think about it, then we're going from the one to the four to the five chord exists in music all through different genres and nationalities and cultures. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. They were using one, four, five progressions in Baroque music. We're still using them now. We're still using two, five, ones. Two, five, ones are all over jazz, but they're also in the blues. They're also in classical music. How is it that they sound different? Phrasing is one of the biggest reasons. There are some different choices in the way that we harmonize those chords and melodies in them. But across the board, one of the biggest distinctions between different types of music are rhythms. When you research, that is one of the things that you should be paying attention is what makes the blues as far as rhythms? How are they feeling it? What's the, is, is it straight ace? Are they slightly swung ace? And there's so many different gradients of ace, but also where are they stressing the beat? How many bars are phrases happening? There's a lot more than just 12 bar blues. There's eight bars, there's 11 bar blues, there's 16 bar blues. So being aware of how many bars you're playing and how you can build a solo around that for it to have a high point and say a story, you need to know how to count. This means knowing what beat you're playing on, what measure you're in, how many measures there are to a section, an overall awareness to the accounting of the music you're playing. Know what time signature you're in as the undercurrent of the song is it 16th notes or eighth notes. Are there any reoccurring anticipations that are happening over again in the song and where are they landing? Some people might say, if you're thinking about all this stuff, the rhythm and the harmony and music theory and fretboard and ear training, it's gonna take you out of the moment and you're supposed to just be in this zen-like moment when you're improvising. But the truth is, is that it doesn't take you out of that. It allows you to stay in that world. You get to a point where you know all of these skills well so that they sit, I won't say like completely the background, but they're not the forefront. Your creativity is at the forefront and what you're feeling and thinking in the moment. You're able to just 
flip to that other screen for a second to use whatever knowledge you have to, I would say, accelerate your creative process in order to stay on track for where you were going. So still at the forefront is my creativity and living in the moment, but I'm not getting stuck or stumped or I would say jolted by ending up in a moment where I feel like I'm not prepared to be able to move it forward. Now, that being said, no matter what you do, sometimes you end up in a moment where you're just a little lost or things aren't working out. And one particular reason I find this happens is sometimes music directors or whoever the band leader is on a gig isn't great at cueing solos. And this can put you in a position of not feeling really stable when you're starting a solo. And that happened where beat two or the first bar, the second measure of a solo, and then getting the nod to start going. And at that point, I feel like I'm just being pushed off of a plank on a pirate ship and just have to survive. Sometimes it'll take till the second repetition of whatever the chord cycle is for me to get some stable footing so I can feel like I can start to devise a plan. So there are going to be occasions like that on gigs that no matter what you do, you're going to be thrown off your game. But if you are a little more versed in some of the points that I was making, then you'll be a little easier to adapt. But one thing I will mention also is the idea of doing free improvisation where you're not playing any rhythms or in any key signature. You're just playing a bunch of random notes. One might wonder, how is this going to be productive if I'm playing pop music or I'm playing a blues solo? It's about mental and physical coordination, making sure that those two can be aligned in the same spot. And also sometimes it helps you devise a plan to get out of a sticky situation where you can, I would say, just create sort of a blur and then resolve it when you get a sense of where you are. I'll give you an idea of this free improvisation that I like to work on. I'm going to use guitar and what I'm going to do is I'm going to play random notes and sometimes they could be far apart from each other or close together. They could be multiple notes at the same time. I'm trying not to repeat a note. So it's a little bit in this mindset of almost 12 tone serial music, but without actually devising an actual row that eventually does repeat the pattern. I'm just approaching it from, I'm trying not to repeat a note I play. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to actively keep my mind and my fingers together to keep moving around and, and it's almost like being thrown into the deep end of a pool and being able to figure out how to adapt and swim so you can get to more of the shallow end of the pool and then you can stand up. trying to do is really work out my coordination with my mind and my fingers. So imagining a place that my fingers were supposed to go and make a sound and then making sure my fingers can go there at the same time, wherever that is outside of any patterns that I may be used to doing. I'm pushing myself outside of regular patterns that I might be used to as I'm like working out scale positions and stuff because I want to be able to adapt and have my fingers go to wherever I may want them to in an improvisation. The other thing I'm doing with this exercise, being free atonal vibe, is I'm trying to listen to some of the notes as I'm playing them and maybe think about where they might want to resolve to. We're also working on our ear to think about an ending note and where I could go to next. A great way to start working on this is to think about the last note you play in a phrase and using that as either a leading tone and using that as a leading tone to either move up or down, for example. This note can very easily lead up to that note. I didn't think of it as being like the seventh tone of scale and right, now I'm here. Okay, the second example, let's move downwards. on that note, I, I stopped. This was in my mind was the end of the phrase and then I led down to that next tone. 
Resolution tones are something we really want to train our ear to hear because if we end up in a dark place during an improvisation, having a good awareness of how to resolve something when it sounds tense can really help us get out of a sticky situation. We can also integrate rhythm into this, repeat the rhythm but play completely random notes. you haven't heard atonal music before, this may sound a little jarring. and You may not be able to make the connection at first to how this could be very beneficial if you play tonal music, but try it for a little bit and see what it actually does to your brain because of the focus on making sure that your mind and fingers are doing the same thing, not out of muscle memory. Let's discuss technological distractions while you're trying to practice improvisation. I used to like to record some progressions I was working on using the voice recorder on my Apple phone or iPhone. Who calls it an Apple phone? An iPhone. One thing I noticed is that my concentration was getting blown because I was getting notified of texts or emails or a number of different pop-ups would come up. And I know you can put your phone into a do not disturb mode. There was something about the technology still being present that was taking me out of it. I went back to a method that I used many years ago. I had a little tabletop cassette recorder and record phrases on, and then I play on top of it. There's a couple of reasons why I like the tabletop recorder, and you don't have to, to do this. Obviously, tabletop cassette recorders are harder to find. I'll give you an option that is not based in ancient technology in a second. There's a couple of things I like about the method of tape. It takes a second to rewind. Uh, sometimes in that second, it allows my mind to consider what I did or just give myself a little rest and come out of it for a second. This doesn't happen when you're using a looper pedal because the looper pedal just loops over and over and over and over again. There's no end to it. I think that we need ends sometimes when we're learning how to improvise because a jam and improvisation isn't endless. If we're going to figure out how to state a story, it's important that we have a limitation to the time to tell the story. So that's one of the other reasons I like tape, the time, the reflection, the fixed amount of time for the repeat sound. Zoom makes some digital recorders now. One of them has a speaker on it. It's the more expensive model, some microphones and a little speaker on it that you can use. I haven't tested it to see how loud the speaker is. My old school Sony, I think it's like from the early 70s, cassette recorder has some pretty good volume on it. So I could play it pretty loud. I know the sound quality is you know, retro and warbly and I like that, but some people might want a more pristine sound. The Zoom will be more pristine. The uh, old cassette recorders definitely had more volume to them, which I like. I'm just gonna demonstrate how I would use this. I'm gonna record on my Sony, play a chord progression. thing I didn't do there was give a proper count in, which I should have. One, two, three, four. I'm going to rewind the tape now. Sometimes you get to hear what you did the other day too, which I like.
would stop the tape and just repeat the process over and over again. But in the time it takes to rewind, I've just taken a second to consider what I've done and maybe what didn't work. And with modern technology, you just, you just press the file again or instant repeat. It's a little intense for the brain, I find. If I'm using a cassette recorder, it's a little more gentle on my brain, it slows the thought process down a little bit. It's more of a musical meditation as opposed to this like fast moving, uh, overstimulated modern technology approach. I'm not opposed to using looper pedals. I use them for certain occasions. I think it's nice to have a couple of great tools in order to assist your growth in learning how to improvise and solo or compose. Let's actually talk about some of the other tools that I use to assist with improvisation. So there's an app called Tempo, which is a metronome app, but it's better than just a regular metronome app because you can uh, save playlists in it. If you're working on a couple of different tempos for songs or in different meters, you can program them in here and just be able to recall them. So it's really great to be able to play along with a metronome. You can also have it count when you're learning on counting measures. It won't count, I don't think, how many measures you've played, but it will state one, two, three, four, or if you're playing seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So it is a good assistant when you're learning how to count the beats that you're playing. It's a wonderful app for that's tempo. I also use an app called Music Tutor for training myself to read notes on a music staff. This is really great because it'll just show notes on your phone and then you have to guess what they are and it tells you if you're right or wrong. You could choose the bass, treble, or alto clef. I've used all of those because I read all of those staffs. It's a really wonderful tool. You could do it as you're on the train or depending on how you commute or go about getting to work or the other things you do, airplanes or whatever, you can spend the time that you would normally be wasting it just doing something helpful for your improvisational skills. So Music Tutor is really awesome. There is an app called iTabla Pro, which I like to use. It's a drone app. Drones are really useful not only when you're practicing, say, slide guitar, but also when you're trying to get good at singing intervals or hearing intervals. There's another app which I'm going to recommend for training your ear, but the drone app is great because you could set it to a drone. I'm just going to say a C drone, and then you can test yourself and sing a major third above that. Test yourself, sing a perfect fifth above that, a perfect fourth. Get an idea of how it sounds when you're singing a note above a fixed pitch so you have a, a, a form of reference to work from. But even before we get to that, we can use an app that I like called Relative Pitch. Now this app can actually play intervals for you and then makes you guess what they are. There's two different modes. There's a test mode, which will actually make you choose what it is. And there's a, like more of a practice or a training mode that will just play intervals and give a few seconds and then tell you what the interval is. Uh, this is a great app because you can also select which intervals you want to work on. It's not a great idea to just try to work on all the intervals at one time. Pick just one or two in the beginning, maybe a perfect fifth and a major third, or you know, a perfect fifth and a perfect fourth, and only select those in relative pitch and work on those until you get a really good sense of what those intervals sound like and you can hear them in your head and then you can add more intervals and then you can move to the drone app and then try singing those intervals on top of a fixed pitch. So this has been a really valuable app for me to use. There's also one from them as well that deals with seventh chords and they make a few variants on that app to help your ears with hearing chords, which I also would encourage looking into. That way you're also training your ear to get used to hearing two, five, one chord progressions or one, four, five, or even more eclectic chord progressions. And I also didn't mention the power of transcription. So as well as reading music, transcribing music that you like without the assistance of reading it or somebody showing you is also important because it's going to train your ear to recognize either patterns in chord progression, rhythmic phrases, um, scale usages, motives, all of the above. But it's important that you do that by actually listening to music and trying to decode it yourself. It may take some time and you have to work on some ear training and rhythm recognition to be able to do this, but I really encourage you 
and as all my mentors encouraged me to dig into transcribing music. It doesn't have to be a whole song. Again, back to the research topic, but just sections of a song. Start small and start simple. Don't transcribe something really hard at first. Start very simple and work your way into it. There's also an app for training rhythm. I think it's called, I don't know if I have it on my phone anymore, but I think it's called Rhythm Trainer. And I used to use this app a lot when I was getting good at or just wanted to touch up on sight reading rhythms. It shows them in front of you and on the screen and then you have to tap them in on your iPhone before you hear it back. As far as learning theory, it's going to take a little bit of a study and it's always helpful to have a teacher. I'm a music teacher, so if you're interested in music theory, you can come to me at be glad to help you on your journey to decode music theory. I also wrote a book called Practice Makes Progress. The concept of the book was to simplify music theory to make it more digestible and take some of the mystery and take some of the, the overcomplicated verbiage used around music theory to make it more accessible for everybody just to understand it because the core concepts themselves are simple. I feel like people make it overcomplicated when they discuss it. You can find my book or contact me at anatomyofguitartone.com. I'd be glad to talk about lessons or if you have any questions about the content in this blog. Obviously, this is a pretty deep subject. Improvisation takes years to develop, but I think if you integrate some of these concepts into your practice time daily, you're gonna see consistent growth in, in multiple areas of one time, which is I think what you have to be doing when you're working on improvisation as opposed to just honing on one skill and waiting till you're good at that and then adding another one in. We're trying to just level up all evenly at the same time. I hope you enjoyed that podcast. I'm going to be taking next week off as it is Thanksgiving in America, so I won't be doing a podcast, but the following week I'll be back and we're going to be looking at Red Panda's Tensor pedal, which is quite an interesting pedal that does really interesting tape-like effects and very speed and you can do all kind of interesting reverse effects very creative pedal i'm going to dig into that and do want to mention that sound toys plugins is selling radiator plugin and all the benefits from that plugin are going to a charitable cause they're donating to doctors without borders right now which is much in need to provide care for unfortunate people that are caught in the middle of the conflicts and in great need of assistance. Uh, all the proceeds, and they've been doing this for years and given to different charities from the radiator plug-in is going to Doctors Without Borders now. So go to soundtoys.com. It's a wonderful plug-in. It's not that expensive and the money goes for a good cause. Hope everybody has a great two weeks. Mm-hmm.